welcome to episode 7 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th and 28th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. In terms of the news at the moment, it emerges that delays in ramping up government and law enforcement interest in fraud made 2019 a year of modest progress for the UK's fraud fighters. That's the view put forward by the Fraud Advisory Panel in its latest 20-page report entitled The Calm Before the Storm, UK Counter-Fraud in 2019. The Fraud Advisory Panel itself acts as the collective voice of the counter-fraud profession. Bold society-wide action is urgently needed, according to the Fraud Advisory Panel, in order to address the confusion and fear brought about by the coronavirus pandemic and the threat of global recession, both of which appear to be impairing criminals everywhere. Though far from a vintage year, 2019 saw welcome signs that governments and law enforcement were beginning to increase their interest in stopping fraud. However, it's the Fraud Advisory Panel's considered opinion that the coronavirus pandemic has once more turned the tide in the fraudsters' favour. It has done so by creating an environment of fear, confusion and economic uncertainty in which fraudsters typically thrive. The Fraud Advisory Panel states, and I quote, only a well-resourced, cross-sector and intelligence-led response can tackle this major threat. The vulnerability to abuse of the company's house regime, something about which the Fraud Advisory Panel has campaigned for many years now, also seemed to have broken into government thinking last year. For its part, the Serious Fraud Office has continued to conclude successful deferred prosecution agreements, though still the Fraud Advisory Panel notes, without converting any of them into individual prosecutions. Since fraudsters care nothing for national borders, the Fraud Advisory Panel shares the widespread concern among many commentators that the fight on fraud will suffer if the UK leaves the European Union without an efficient mechanism for criminal justice and security cooperation. In January, preparations began for that possibility with the publication in draft form of the Law Enforcement and Security Amendment Regulations 2019. These will come into force at the end of the transition period and address the consequences for extradition and mutual legal assistance of a so-called no-deal Brexit, in which the UK is no longer part of the European arrest warrant and streamlined EU-wide extradition process. Similarly, the Sanctions Amendment EU Exit Regulations 2019, themselves also laid before Parliament back in January, are designed to correct post-withdrawal sanctions situations in which retained EU law is no longer effective. Despite the Financial Fraud Action Task Force's favourable assessment of the UK's anti-money laundering regime in 2018, the regime continued to attract severe criticism throughout 2019. The Treasury Select Committee's report entitled Economic Crime, Anti-Money Laundering Supervision and Sanctions Implementation, for example, concluded that the UK's AML framework remained unfit for purpose, despite the creation of the Office for Professional Body Anti-Money Laundering Supervision. According to the Treasury Select Committee, fragmented processes still rely on too many separate organisations supervising AML checks. The government's response, issued three months later in fact, was broadly encouraging, accepting that Companies House needs proper powers to combat economic crime, HMRC must continue to ensure all its data agents are registered with it, and that the UK's efforts to secure post-Brexit trade deals should not compromise its fight against economic crime. Last summer saw the government publish a new economic crime plan which, states the Ford Advisory Panel, looked rather like a new AML plan. The panel observes, and again I quote, the plan is welcome not least because it's the first of its kind since the fraud review almost 15 years ago. We hope it signals a new intent to tackle economic crime in its broadest sense. However, the seven priority areas and 52 actions under its generic title conspicuously focus on money laundering, not fraud, prompting concerns that it does in fact signal a continued preference for putting the cart, 
i.e. the need to crack down on the laundering of the proceeds of economic crimes, before the horse, i.e. tackling the crimes themselves. In 2019, only modest steps to prepare the UK for a new wave of crisis-related and recession-related fraud risks were taken by policymakers, but now it's time for them to decide whether 2020 will be remembered as the year in which we made more progress or dropped the ball entirely. There's a feeling among many that we need a wholesale revamping of society's fraud resilience to reflect the dramatically changed realities that will hit us hard very soon. Post-pandemic, when the world settles into its new socially distanced and remote working normal, fraud fighters everywhere expect to be playing catch-up as they face a wave of crisis-related frauds. It's very much this, i.e. the new and heightened fraud risks that flow from the COVID-19 pandemic and the social, psychological and commercial changes it forces upon us all that will be the core focus of the Fraud Advisory Panel's next detailed report. Following on from the last Security Matters podcast where we focused on the financial results for G4S in 2020 to date, one of its main competitors, Securitas, has produced a video celebrating and displaying the importance of critical security personnel during COVID-19. This move has received high praise from the British Security Industry Association. Earlier this year, as news began to spread about the devastating coronavirus pandemic, countries across the world necessarily went into lockdown. Millions of people have had their lives put on hold in the face of the challenge posed by preventing the spread of COVID-19, among them the employees and management teams of local businesses right through to national institutions. The crisis itself has brought out the very best in so many individuals. Communities and neighbours here in the UK have stood together in celebrating the dedication and commitment of, for example, frontline NHS workers. In the face of the adversity realised by COVID-19, a silent and often unseen cohort of critical workers have been keeping businesses, properties and communities safe right across the UK. From highly trained security operatives manning 24-7 operation centres through to frontline security officers and mobile patrol teams, the role of the security professional has arguably never been more important. However, despite this truism, the valiant work transacted by those security professionals still remains largely unrecognised outside of the security world. With this very much in mind, and in a determined bid to showcase the critical work of security personnel, Securitas has produced the aforementioned six-minute-long video featuring in-depth interviews with security officers from three separate countries. The video outlines their experiences to date during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ian McCulloch, a mobile patrol officer with Securitas in the UK, describes his experience during the pandemic. McCulloch explained, and I quote, Throughout the coronavirus pandemic, our roles have been even more demanding. We've had to be even more vigilant and carry out extra duties with added responsibilities. As critical workers, we're essential in helping to prevent the spread of the virus. COVID-19 is on my mind all the time, and I'm proud of the work I do. I feel a huge sense of pride knowing that, by helping to prevent the spread of the virus, I'm keeping people safe. Danny Williams, Chief Operating Officer at Securitas UK, commented, From the outset, we've worked closely with our clients to proactively manage the risk of infection on site. We've completed detailed security and risk assessments and provided expert guidance and advice in order to make sure every aspect of our clients' unique security and safety revision is met. As our offices interact with clients and the general public at sites across the UK on a daily basis, it's very important they understand what they need to do to avoid any transmission risk. On that note, Williams added, Many procedures have changed. There are lots of new guidelines, so clear instructions, training and regular updates are essential in helping our security officers to interact safely with colleagues, clients and the general public. Mike Reddington, the Chief Executive at the British Security Industry Association, has observed, It's vital that the work of our industry members is highlighted and showcases the importance of this critical industry, especially now as more people are moving around thanks to some venues across the UK beginning to reopen. The Securitas videos and the company's diligent work on resetting perceptions is commendable, not to mention giving the public a first-hand view from a security 
officer's perspective. We are pleased to help promote this initiative and incorporate it into the wider industry campaign. The UK's army of critical security personnel can go unnoticed as its constituent members work each day and night in creating a secure and safe environment for the public. This work is often entwined with the UK's critical infrastructure and frequently slips into a hidden workforce category. That being the case, and as reported by Security Matters, the BSIA, the Security Institute and the Security Commonwealth have recently joined forces to challenge perceptions and raise awareness of the professional security industry by launching a new campaign. We would urge all of our readers to actively support that campaign wherever and whenever they can. Our first interviewee this time around is Gus Derek Warren. Gus is a group director of the Lynx International Group, a role he took on subsequent to a police career in South Africa and then employment as an independent security consultant. The Lynx International Group provides security and risk management consultancy services, security management training and security systems consultancy and training through its constituent companies. These are Lynx International, Perpetuity Arc and Tavcom Training. For his part, Gus advises on security risk and crisis management issues and the formulation of security programs. He regularly conducts security risk assessments and threat analyses for key installations. Gus is a chartered security professional and a fellow of the Security Institute. During our chat, we focused on the current training landscape and also what it might look like as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. First, the talk was all about the importance of continuing professional development for today's security practitioners. Gus, there's been much discussion on the subject of continuing professional development in security circles these last few years. The Security Institute is doing great work in promoting CPD and, of course, continual learning is all part and parcel of becoming a chartered security professional and maintaining that status. Precisely why do you feel professional development is so important in our sector? Thanks very much for that, uh, Brian. Yeah, firstly, Rick Mountfield and the team at the SYI are doing a cracking job in terms of making sure that all the members have access to uh, CPD opportunities, etc. And I think as the SYI continues to grow, the membership numbers, this will be really helpful in terms of the, uh, the target they have towards getting chartered status. Secondly, with the, the registered chartered security professionals, something that's quite dear to my heart because I was on the original working group with Alison Wakefield putting together the competence requirements. And personally, for me, you've got to, uh, as a professional in your sector, you have to make sure that you are upskilling, making sure that you're doing um, as much development as you can to make sure that you don't have skills fade. So you're remaining current with methodologies, technologies and advancements in our sector. We need to be aware of developments that we can implement into our solutions for our clients, make sure that we are providing sustainable solutions, for example. Um, just as you would expect any lawyer, doctor or dentist to update skills on a regular basis, we want the same expectation from our security professionals to be doing the same. And also the, the professionalization project for the security sector has to have as an element of CPD in there. You know, we, we need to understand, that, as it were, the traits of, of a profession. So just again, as our peers in law, medicine, engineering and so forth are doing their training and the traits that they show, we have to mirror. We have to make sure that we are, uh, we have uh, specialist uh, skills, we have codes of practice, we have a, a body of knowledge, for example, and the, obviously the professional associations will assist with this uh, to make sure And as we progress, hopefully we'll get more regulation through the professional associations. Are we there yet? Not quite. I think the perception of security to the man on the on the, the Clapham omnibus, as it were, is that security still comprises yellow jackets, CCTV, gates and fences, and evidently we all know it's not. Um, but how we actually push that across to our to our, our end user is, is particularly important. So the SYI, the Register of Chartered Security Professionals, ACES, the Register of Security Engineers and Specialists, and other initiatives such as the Register of Technical Security Professionals, they're all contributing to the professionalization project and at the same time making sure that all our 
uh, co-professionals are actually upskilling, and it's vital we do that in the sector. It's vital and must continue to do so. In terms of anecdotal evidence and actual activity on the ground, Gus, what type of training are individuals now actively seeking and why? Well, uh, it's a great time to be uh, investing in training. Um, a lot of people are suggesting that this is the, definitely the time to be doing it. There are people who have extra time on their hands. They may be furloughed or unfortunately they may have been re- made redundant uh, or they're working reduced hours. So there is potentially time for people to do training. But we actually need to understand the whole pedagogy of the whole uh, aspect, what drives people to training. Uh, and from the experience we've got over the last uh, couple of months, they're looking to do CPD and, and develop themselves. For example, upskilling, they're looking to make themselves look more employable. We've had inquiries from individuals who are looking to add their resu- uh, to their CV, to their resume, and plug perceived gaps. Their desires to be seen as an invaluable asset to their employer who will retain them as opposed to uh, a less qualified colleague, for example. So the stronger desire is you know, to, to keep, keep your job, obviously, is there. But also we've got a lot of people who are repurposing. They are being given additional uh, work to do, they're being given additional uh, tasks which might not be within their current remit. So they're looking to make sure they are uh, or have a basic understanding, basic knowledge of these new areas of work. So therefore they can they can actually do those jobs more effectively. And then there are those who are traditionally understand the value of personal development. They need to develop themselves uh, using accredited training courses up to and including MSc level and perhaps beyond, which will help them through the pandemic uh, and then beyond in, the, in terms of their chosen career. So they're looking for relevant training to their new uh, repurposed roles in the, in the workplace. And there is definitely a, a desire for accredited training. So we've seen a lot of people who, yes, they took advantage of the, the large amount of content that was put out by people when lockdown started, and everyone should be applauded for that across the sector in terms of providing information for people. But we have found a, a significant upsurge in the accredited courses, particularly the Institute's Certificate and Diploma and Advanced Diploma in Security Management. So that, that has, has um, seen a huge uplift. And they are seen as valuable qualifications because they are underpinned by the Security Institute and not, as it were, by a a training company. But the training has to be fit for purpose. It has to be delivering what it says on the label. It enables you to conduct, for example, uh, a security survey if you effectively, if you've done a security surveys course. So it has to be relevant for the person's needs, um, as well as having the accreditation and the underpinning support of an institution such as the Security Institute. Obviously, the COVID-19 crisis has impacted security training, Gus, with the classroom-based scenario necessarily off limits for the last three months or so. What's the current shape of training delivery? It's very fluid at the moment, I would say. Um, so obviously the closure of uh, training facilities, training centres and, and, and training face-to-face is problematic for everyone. So we found a lot of our learners were able to uh, defer and rebook themselves onto courses, which they have done. But now as we've got to, as it were, to the time when we are opening, we are delivering training face-to-face, then some of those learners have withdrawn from courses because there is no longer funding from their employer because you see that uh, training budgets tend to get cut when there's a, a downturn. So it was fairly bleak for everyone, I believe, at the end of March. Um, but the upsurge in terms of online distance learning and also the remote type of learning of podcasts, webinars, etc., that took off. So in terms of Again, the distance learning programs such as the SYI courses or the ACES certifications, uh, APP, uh, PSP and CPP uh, have all seen significant uplifts in, in, a time, in, in the number of people um, who wanted to study. Uh, in terms of virtual training, everyone has um, moved on to virtual training. Um, so whichever video conferencing software or video conferencing suite you can use, it can be challenging. It's a question of re 
jigging the programs to make sure that course can be delivered effectively. Some courses are definitely a lot easier to deliver. Some do require careful manipulation of breakout rooms and virtual whiteboards and, and a lot more of, a, as it were, here's one I prepared earlier to make life a lot simpler. So we have to develop, and people are develop, have people are uh, or have changed their delivery style, uh, and in terms of materials and also the styles of delivery. So you're having to operate under constraint timeframes um, and more specifics in terms of the deliverables of a training course need to be kind of um, you know identified and, and hammered out. So the remote online bite sizes, webinars, podcasts, those are all easily accessible from our learners, um, and that's really good for everyone to be able to get a general feel about a subject. And um, generally, I feel it's positive. I think that the adapting courses for virtual or digital delivery, as well as developing new program or new new programs, new content, that's all very positive. However, I suppose the only caveat is, as we in the UK move down to no longer receiving support from the government, and as the pandemic continues to stretch across Africa and other countries, South America, etc., then I think there's going to be longer-term challenges with a potential global recession, etc. And again, as I said before, there is a tendency for budgets to be cut and training being, being sort of at the forefront of those cuts. So I think it's a difficult position, but um, I think that the, the, the sector, the training sector has been very flexible and I think it's, it's more resilient than it was perhaps six, eight months ago. Is there no sense that instructor-led training and learning is going to be a thing of the past? Now, this is a big debate that I've had with a number of other uh, colleagues across the sector. So for me, the training side is the human engagement is, is an essential element of training. Now, if you're in a classroom for five days or two weeks with people or over a period of time, face-to-face training, you can develop those relationships, etc. It's a lot harder to do that if you're using virtual or remote um, means of delivery. But, so I would say in a nutshell, um, I don't think it's a thing of the past. It's going to have to re-jig itself. So I think we have to focus on how we actually develop the learning experience. So we need to make sure we have meaningful interactions between people. Um, we need to develop that. We need to be taking, uh, looking at the education sector and saying, right, how have they been doing? Because traditionally we have been a little bit slow in the way we deliver or in the way we deliver training uh, in our sector. So use of collaboration tools, we can use quizzes, polls, all those kind of things, which then start to bring a more interactive element into the training role and just a, as it were, chalk and talk of a person in front of a group. I think there's going to be a demand for practical and competence-based training. It's, um, it's one thing is learning the, uh, the theory, the academic principles behind the subject, but actually kind of put it into practice. So, you know, the use of AI will come into us, but again, we're, we're probably slow on the uptake of that, but eventually um, and it's already being used in other sectors where you can use an AI kind of solution to, dare I say, wiring a plug or fitting your alarm system, whatever. So the actual, as with a hands-on aspect, I think will be there until we start to get into use of technology for delivering training. So... That, for me, will mean that uh, ILT will remain. I think uh, it also depends a little bit in terms of the region you're delivering training in. Again, people enjoy having the interaction. They have the, the development of relationships with classmates, colleagues. And, and we know from experience that a lot of people are spending five days in the classroom and then you've got friends for life, you've got colleagues for life, and that's one of the significant part, which is something you miss out on from a remote training aspect. You don't, you know, unless you hunt around and create your own, I don't know, WhatsApp group or something, it's sometimes the interaction is missing from the remote or the virtual side of things. So I don't think ILT is a thing of the past. I think uh, it'll have to develop itself to make it more interesting. 
Um, but I think it'll, it'll remain. But now the question is, will it remain as in the significant uh, majority of delivery or less? That, that remains to be seen. And following on from all of this, Gus, looking into the crystal ball, what do you believe security training is going to look like in the new normal? Now, if only I had that crystal ball, then uh, I'd be a multi-billionaire or two by now. So I think there will be a continued normalisation of the remote and virtual learning. I think uh, many companies um, were slightly sceptical about it, um, but I think now they're more open to delivery methods, these newer, newer and I use that in inverted commas, newer delivery methods. Um, I think there has been a significant uplift in the use of podcasts, webinars from a remote learning point of view. I think this in terms of content level, I think this will stabilize and form what I consider the, uh, uh, the informal, it'll, it'll make up a considerable portion of the informal training side of things. So people will be able to access CBD on specific subjects, technologies, etc. And so organizations such as the Security Institute will um, continue to put out useful, relevant um, webinars, uh, podcasts, etc., which will then allow people to to continue dipping in and taking out little nuggets of information that they need. So I think that's going to be very useful. I think from a from a so probably on from a previous question, I think trainers will have to um, develop themselves. So you know, delivering in front of a classroom, okay, fine. So being on stage, as it were, and, and bring to life the subject, um, yes. We continue to do that, but then we're going to have to understand how we can remain uh, engaged with the learners if we're using virtual uh, delivery, etc. So I think, yes, you'll still have your, as it were, your war stories, but you're going to have to be a lot more focused on making sure the key deliveries and not just sort of uh, developing your, your training style so people learn from you um, from anecdotally, but from actually being more specific in terms of, of identifying the deliverables and and, and, and pushing those and making sure that the actual learners understand it. I think the ILT aspect will be dependent on sector uh, and region, um, as I was saying about uh, the regions of the world. So the the issues we have with ILT could be, you know, we have language barriers, etc. But I think if we start to think about using virtual or remote uh, learning in some parts of the world, uh, yes, it's a good idea. Yes, um, companies can see the benefits of it, and it might be seen as a cheaper way of delivering uh, training. But you know, as I said before, people are creating their relationships over a period of time together. Um, you know, there are organisations, there are you know sectors where going on a training course, and particularly an outside of country. So if they come to the UK or they go to a different country, that is seen as part of their package of their um, employers' package that offered to them or a reward for certain good tasks. So the issue we have uh, again in certain regions is, um, and if we're trying to deliver virtual training. There is a cultural aspect. Some people, um, obviously, distance learning requires a higher level of personal motivation, a lot of planning, a lot of time management, and this can be a barrier to some who have hectic uh, work schedules. So they will prefer the, the ILT side of things. Um, but even for our remote or our virtual training, uh, and more prosaically, the basic considerations such as an access to a computer, to a laptop, to a speaker, to a camera, uh, uh, to the internet itself, or even the stable electricity supply, that can and does uh, preclude virtual or remote learning tools as methods of delivery of training. So that's going to be an interesting one. But in a, you know, to sum up, there has to be human engagement, human interaction. Uh, these are how people learn. Now, how we do that 
in terms of IoT or remote virtual, et cetera, is for us to actually develop and make sure that whatever uh, delivery method we are making sure it's engaging, it's actually giving the deliverables on what the course is supposed to do and making sure that the individual themselves benefit. And that's what we're here for. We're here to make sure the individual benefits. And if the individual benefits, then those benefits will then move on into the sector and then we just develop our sector and we become uh, hopefully uh, accepted as that profession that we know we are. Back to the latest news now, and UK law enforcement has made a massive breakthrough in the fight against serious and organised crime after the takedown of a bespoke encrypted global communication service used exclusively by criminals. Entire organised crime groups have been dismantled during Operation Venetic, with 746 arrests and £54 million worth of criminal cash, 77 firearms and over two tonnes of drugs seized to date. EncroChat was one of the largest providers of encrypted communications and offered a secure mobile phone instant messaging service, but an international law enforcement team managed to crack the company's encryption. There were 60,000 users of the platform worldwide and around 10,000 users here in the UK. The sole use of the service was for coordinating and planning the distribution of illicit commodities, money laundering and even plotting to kill rival criminals. Since 2016, the National Crime Agency has been working with international law enforcement agencies on targeting EncroChat, as well as other encrypted criminal communication platforms by dint of sharing technical expertise and intelligence. Two months ago, this collaboration resulted in partners in France and the Netherlands infiltrating the platform. The data harvested was shared via Europol. Unbeknown to users of the service, the National Crime Agency and the Police Service have been monitoring their every move since then, under the aforementioned Operation Venetic, the umbrella term for the UK's dedicated law enforcement response. Simultaneously, European law enforcement agencies have also been targeting organised crime groups. The Enclo chat service have now been shut down. Operation Venetic is in fact the biggest and most significant operation of its kind in the UK. The National Crime Agency, regional organised crime units and police forces alike have punched big holes in the UK's organised crime network. As stated, 746 suspects have now been arrested. Over £54 million in criminal cash has been seized so too 77 firearms, including an AK-47 assault rifle, submachine guns, handguns, four grenades and over 1,800 rounds of ammunition. Upwards of two tonnes of Class A and B drugs have been seized, as well as over 28 million etizolam pills from an illicit laboratory, not to mention 55 high-value cars and 73 luxury watches. In addition, by working closely with policing partners, a specialist National Crime Agency team has prevented rival gangs from carrying out kidnappings and executions on the UK streets, as a result of mitigating over 200 threats to life. Organised crime groups in the UK have been using EncroChat, communicating freely and believing that the technology made them secure. The criminal group behind EncroChat operated from outside the UK. On 13th of June, EncroChat realised the platform had been penetrated and sent a message to its users urging them to throw away their handsets. The phones, which have preloaded apps for instant messaging, the ability to make VoIP calls and a kill code which wipes them remotely, have neither conventional smartphone functionality and cost around £1,500 for a six-month contract. The National Crime Agency created the technology and specialist data exploitation capabilities required to process the EncroChat data and help identify and locate offenders by analysing millions of messages and hundreds of thousands of images. Intelligence packages were disseminated to NCA operational teams, regional organised crime units, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, Police Scotland, the Metropolitan Police Service, UK Border Force, the Prison Service and HMRC 
to develop and launch investigations. The highest harm organised crime groups were prioritised, with officers working tirelessly to attribute the handles to real-world identities. For its part, the Crown Prosecution Service is leading all of the Operation Benedict prosecutions. A dedicated team of over 500 National Crime Agency officers has been working on Operation Benedict night and day, as well as thousands more across policing. This has all been made possible because of superb collaborative work with the UK's international partners. Together, they protected the public by arresting middle-tier criminals and the kingpins, the so-called iconic untouchables, who've evaded law enforcement for years. Now the evidence exists to prosecute them. By dismantling these groups, the authorities have saved countless lives and protected communities right across the UK. Every UK police force has worked together to carry out these warrants, and they deserve the highest commendation for their tremendous efforts. What's described as a groundbreaking new technology partnership between two of the leading businesses in security monitoring and facial recognition, namely Sentinel and Facewatch, has enabled them to offer the security industry an integrated solution focused on improving workplace security. Sentinel supplies alarm monitoring systems to the UK market, with circa 600,000 signalling systems live at the present time. These are monitored to the relevant British, European and US standards, with software provided by Monitor Computer Systems. For its part, Facewatch is the general data protection regulation compliant facial recognition system for the retail business and hospitality sectors. The partnership between the two creates a seamless integration, allowing monitoring stations to receive alerts from the FaceWatch system and activate a series of responses, including automatic audio announcements, in order to alert any subjects of interest that they've been detected and remotely manage the incident through dedicated video links to customer premises. Speaking about this announcement, Michael Askew, the CEO at Monitor Computer Systems, said, Profit margins in retail are so tight that any losses from theft can undermine the viability of stores. The FaceWatch facial recognition system provides a means of preventing shoplifting before it happens, resulting in significant loss reduction. By immediately alerting store managers and security officers that a suspicious person has entered a given premises, a low-key response can then deter would-be thieves. Askew continued, Where staff are unable to respond to potential theft or acts of antisocial behaviour, the FaceWatch system can transmit notifications to a central alarm receiving centre where the operators can respond by issuing audible warnings over the store's PA system. Certain stores can gain particular benefit from this remote protection service during those hours when managers are not present and staff are particularly vulnerable. We believe that this combination of FaceWatch and Sentinel's technologies will be a big step forward in the fight against crime. Nick Fisher, the CEO at FaceWatch, responded, Facial recognition is fast becoming the go-to crime deterrent for the retail sector, and as we emerge from lockdown and enter a tough period of high unemployment and likely a long-lasting recession, crime and antisocial behaviour, which is already showing a huge spike, will only worsen. It's therefore incredibly timely that we've been able to partner with Michael and his team to deliver the integration upgrade now. The FaceWatch Sentinel integration can be installed to the customer's premises in less than a day by any FaceWatch accredited partner and automatically links to the customer's designated monitoring station. FaceWatch has been providing crime prevention solutions to the retail industry for over a decade now. The company launched the first ever online crime reporting system, including CCTV footage, back in 2012. And this eventually led to last year's introduction of the inaugural GDPR-compliant facial recognition solution for the retail sector. The system enables stores to deter habitual criminals who shoplift, abuse workers, or cause criminal damage. Managers are alerted instantly by an app on their mobile phones and from automatic facial recognition cameras positioned at store entrances the moment a subject of interest enters the premises. The FaceWatch system is scalable for use by large retail groups due to its cloud-based servers and Edge Intel and UC Mini PCs. All data is managed securely by FaceWatch. Importantly, FaceWatch doesn't store information about the general public, just those for whom its retailer subscribers have uploaded confirmed evidence of reasonably suspected criminal activity. If a facial image is not matched to a relevant watch list, then the algorithmic data is instantly deleted.
Our next interviewee this time around is Richard Jackson, the founder and chairman of the GateSafe charity. Richard has spent over 47 years in the fencing and gate industry and is the former CEO of Jackson's Fencing, a fencing and access control business with a multi-million pound turnover. Richard masterminded Jackson's Fencing's entry into the steel security products market and boasts a vast knowledge of all aspects of the physical security industry, including gate and barrier automation. After founding GateSafe back in 2010, he stepped down as CEO at Jackson's to devote 100% of his time to the charity. Earlier this week, I interviewed Richard about the charity and its key achievements to date. Richard, could you explain for us what GateSafe is and what was the catalyst for setting up the charity a decade ago now? The um, GateSafe charity is what it says. Uh, We're aiming to prevent any accidents. Um, That was in the wake of the two tragedies back in 2010 where two girls were killed within three weeks of one another. It became very obvious at that point in time that um, there was a lot of confusion around gate safety. Uh, People didn't understand the standards and uh, it was time someone stepped in to try and make it clear for everyone. What are the charity's primary objectives, Richard, and can you outline who exactly you're targeting with the all-important messaging you're putting across? We're really looking at everyone in the um, train of the gate information, not only automatic gates, but manual as well. Uh, So that starts with the installer uh, installing the gate. But prior to that, you've got an architect that might be specifying it, a contractor that might be ordering it. Uh, So everyone that's associated with the gates are are people that we're looking to um, educate. You mentioned installers there, Richard. What are the benefits to installers of becoming trained gate-safe aware practitioners, do you feel? There are a number of benefits. First and foremost, um, they get entered onto the GateSafe website, which generates leads for them. If a user wants to find a GateSafe credit installer, they will uh, type in the postcode in the find and installer section and 10 names will come up. Uh, they also get used to the GateSafe logo, which is something that we're obviously very uh, proud of. Um, and the fact it looks like the GasSafe logo is no real mistake. We're emulating them as far as possible. Ideally, we want to get GateSafe to the same credibility. But in addition to that, um, they're protecting their business by having trained engineers. They have the manual after the training, which is an ongoing reference for them that they carry around with them. One of the most important things probably is the GateSafe advisory line. So if after the training they've got any questions or queries, they can just pick up the phone and we'll um, be there to support or help them in any way we can. Additionally, they've got the access to the GateSafe hub, which is a customer relations management system, which um, again can generate revenue for the customers. Uh, for the users, uh, access to the gates ECS white card, so to get on to um, construction sites. Um, and also they've got the benefit of the support from the key opinion form as Rossburg Electrical Contract Association, as an example. In addition to the training aspect, Richard, and in light of this being GateSafe's 10th anniversary year, as we've mentioned, what would you say are the charity's key achievements to date in that period? Basically, we've trained something like 2,000 installers and sort of practically in the field. When we started back in 2010, it was very clear that most of the gates uh, that we're looking at were ranging from slightly unsafe to downright dangerous. Although the um, situation isn't 100% there yet, realistically, if you go out and do surveys now, you're probably finding something like 75% are 
nearly there. There's only 25% that are potentially an accident waiting to happen. So that's a real achievement. You know, getting the training accredited by Irish was a, a bonus for us. And in recent times, we've actually had to develop distance uh, learning because of the COVID um, issues, and that's been very well received. And lastly, Richard, can you outline Gates saves current priorities and perhaps some plans for the future? What we've always wanted is that um, having safe gates is a legal requirement. Now, whether that's legal or regulation doesn't really matter. So that's something we're constantly pushing for uh, through government of Westminster and the like. Another thing that we're also pushing is support from the insurance industry. If you take a lot of the um, things that you see on building sites now, in the main, they've been pushed by the, the insurance companies, you know, high-vis jackets as the obvious example. And we feel that if insurance could understand the, the risks around the automatic gate or the machine as it really is, that would be a real bonus for us. You've got the gate manufacturers. Um, there have been a number of fatalities where gates have just fallen on people through bad design, bad installation. Simple issues like putting three hinges on a gate, you know, that could easily be done. It's done on doors in the house. Why not on gates? And then you've got DIY kits from the equipment manufacturers. They're still being supplied in huge numbers to people that are not qualified to install the equipment. Uh, and they're not even being supplied with enough safety devices to install them safely. Now, it's absolutely cranky. And then, you know, finally, we're just looking to um, get more awareness of the risks for everyone involved. Our final guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Stephen Kenny, industry liaison for architecture and engineering at Axis Communications. Stephen has spent 14 years in the security business sector, undertaking various roles during that time that have seen him take responsibility for key elements of mission-critical and high-profile projects across a number of different vertical markets. For the last four of those years, Stephen has focused his attentions on how technologies can best complement day-to-day operations and address operational issues. Stephen is a committee member for ACES International, focusing on education, for the security business sector and also the UK technology advisor for TinyG. He's a key driver, in fact, behind the security convergence movement. I spoke with Stephen to find out his views on today's security systems and how they're actively helping end users during the COVID-19 crisis. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on this week's podcast. What do you see as the biggest benefits of security technologies being deployed to address the current COVID-19 related challenges? Thank you, Brian. Um, Yeah, I think there's a a lot of things that we need to consider here. Obviously, the security technologies is is very well established. And what what I see and I think what Axis see from this is there's two key areas that we need to consider. There's obviously the the compliance to the government guidelines, just making sure sure that the the sort of the framework that's been put out to to both businesses. And if we take sort of retail as an example, some of the, the key poignant points that they need to consider when reopening. But but there's one thing that I think we need to consider is, is it's confidence. I, I think we need to instill confidence uh, and whether that be right, or through sort of sound or visually. And um, we, we need to build confidence in people that are returning back to work, whether that's people going back to big offices, whether whether or not it's people jumping on public transport or it's people returning to sort of retail retail sort of environments yeah and i guess it is there are critical areas that we that we absolutely need to consider there and can you outline examples of some of the technologies being used at the moment and their applications Stephen? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so where we've where we've seen it is, is I think what we'll, we we'd like to see is, or where we are seeing it is, we are seeing people that are starting to repurpose existing technologies, and and I think we we see people being quite creative with with understanding um, how technologies are being deployed and how they can sort of creatively use them in different applications. So, if we consider if we consider some of the key areas um, that the businesses need to adopt. It's around things like social distancing, making sure that when people are coming back into an environment, you know, there's clear demarcation of, you know, where people can and can't go. And so, there are pre-existing technologies that we're that we're seeing around um, that that we need to consider. So, if we look at social distancing, it's it's how how are people using a video surveillance system and identifying um, how many people might be in a set area at any one time that is enabling them to send some form of notification to, to at least warn people that you know the, the you know they, they need to embrace or adopt and consider the importance of social distancing. Then, then there's things around occupancy levels. So if we if we look at if we if we need to consider the importance of social distancing, that is essentially limiting the, the number of people that might be allowed into a set defined area. And obviously, I think retailers at the forefront have gone through this exercise um, from the start. What what we are seeing is is when we look at occupancy. It's about understanding very quickly and efficiently how many people might be in an environment at any one time. Uh, And then we've got in retailers, again, we've got direction related um, analytics. So if you you go into any any number of the retailers now, you'll you'll see there's clearly defined entrance and exit points. We're going to see how um, there's like a route through through sites now, whether they be construction sites, retail sites, which is essentially leading people on a journey now. What, these are applications that that have been around for for many years now, and we've we, we just see that, that an analytic on a video surveillance camera is being deployed to actually facilitate the these new the new norm that, that we're starting to see as well. What, one of the key things that we, we probably do need to consider is is there is there is no magic bullet or is there is no silver bullet to to actually to making a a a covid-19 solution it is about make it's about utilizing lots of different technologies that are well established and proven to to try and facilitate and support compliance with that because we need to embrace that we need to embrace that there, there are different pillars to to the success of this and technology is only one. Uh, we need to absolutely consider the importance of where people sit in this, and the processes that sit behind this as well. And if we if we look at what are established technologies in this field, obviously, video surveillance is is one that that is widely adopted and is there for security purposes. And video analytics, and there's lots of different flavors of analytics that will do lots of different things. So it's it's sort of cherry picking the right one to, to address the application that we need to consider. But one that the, there's, there's one that we've started to see that is really important in this, and it's the power of audio uh, and, and how that is influencing people's behavior. So if we consider occupancy levels uh, and you go into a site and the essentially you've hit the occupancy level what's the process that sits behind that how we how we how we notifying people that are waiting when they can go in or, or whether or not they need to stop at the the entrance and exit and and a, a, an audio device sat on the network 
give some sort of pre-automated or uh, pre-configured audio announcements. So that may, if the occupancy level is met, so video camera detects through the analytic that the occupancy is is at capacity, then it can tri trigger an event or an alarm in an audio device that would essentially say um, they, uh, the retail environment is currently at capacity and um, please wait until um, you get a notification to enter the environments um, and that is that's for construction sites it's for normal offices and, and that is really giving people the confidence that actually at this environment that i'm going into has adopted a strategy to support compliance to to the, the framework um, that has been published by the government to to open these to open these sites another one that we are seeing is and it's something that I guess has been talked or spoken about for it definitely the last twelve to eighteen months, but probably probably as far back as five or six years is the concepts of things like frictionless access control or contactless access control. Now, I I think they mean different things to different people, and how they're adopted and how they're operated is slightly different. But nevertheless, I think the importance in the current environment has really increased, and the number of stakeholders that that are speaking around these challenges is is increasing as well. So, so where we've seen it is where we see frictionless access control. That that may be considerations around how people are how people are moving around the site, around the buildings, what's the flow of people. Um, and contactless might be more focused to, to the hardware that's being deployed. So, so rather than having push to exits and, and sort of um, lift controls, things like that, that there's, a more, there's a more contactless approach to that. And, and essentially, it's, it's using alternative credentials. So what we may traditionally have seen as just a, 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 an access control system being deployed, it might have just been a, a, a traditional access control card. But over the last few years, what we've started to see is we've started to see alternative credentials, so um, QR codes, which might be downloaded onto your device, and we might see someone's face, so facial recognition systems um, being utilised, um, long long if we see sort of license plates being adopted. So so people are being quite creative with, with how they're getting, getting access, um, access to and from buildings. Uh, and quite interestingly, on the back of on the back of recent events, we've seen organizations like the Center uh, Center Protection of National Infrastructure and recently the, the Building Council of Offices produce produce either white papers or briefing notes, documents to support what the, the future post-COVID-19 building design should consider and look like. Uh, and, and the BCO actually do, do talk around alternative credentials and it is around the experience of entering the building. What, what does the interaction look like between between people entering, whether or not they be a visitor, whether or not they're a staff member, and, and essentially how, how they can integrate visitor management systems and access control systems into into single platform, just just to try and make it as seamless as possible, to try and prevent that bottleneck. So it's improving the experience, but it, it's supporting it's supporting the guidelines and the framework that's been put in that's been put in place. So, so there's absolutely loads of, of opportunities that we're seeing with, with existing technologies. Um, and, it, and it sits across all the different solutions that, that we're seeing, whether or not it be, it be traditional video surveillance systems, analytics, 
um, and access control. But equally, equally as important is also is audio because audio systems are there, and and actually that 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 helps create the awareness of people's behaviour because if it's not visual um, and you can't see things, the, the next best alternative are audio systems and we, we've seen them for traditional sort of PAVA systems in, in fire applications where if a fire alarm goes off, the audio system will, will start to create a notification telling people what to do. And by utilising those systems and developing a cause and effect strategy between between the analytics and the video surveillance system, we can start to send automated notifications through the audio systems to create that awareness about people's behaviour, make, make sure that, that what they're doing is correct. And actually, it, it, it's, it takes away some of the confrontation. So, so now we're not relying on security personnel and staff telling people that, you know, they might not necessarily be following the rules or following the processes. We are starting to see that, that we, can, we can take that and automate that process. And, and people feel more comfortable just it feeling like a pre-recorded notification rather than somebody telling them that they're doing something wrong. And when looking to deploy such technologies to address today's COVID-19 challenges, what should buyers, i.e. the end users, consider to be the fundamental areas of focus when it comes to selecting their technology partners? For me, I think what we need to, to look at is, is we, need to, we need to continue the thought process of having a long-term strategy. Now, my own personal opinion is there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions that we're starting to see. And I... I I understand why, because businesses are, you know, businesses are keen to get back to the new normal uh, as quickly as possible. But we need to be mindful that that what we need to do is we need to consider the, the technologies that we're deploying. They're fit for purpose. So do they address the, the current challenges um, that we see today? Um, but more importantly, is, is this a shrewd investment? Is this is this investment going to support them on a long term, on a long term strategy moving forward as well? Um, and some of the some of the key points that that I think are important to address is that that when we look at any form of sort of supply chain due diligence, or we're looking at the the technology partners, it, does this does this look like a a, a solution that just addresses? Um, today's needs, or does this does this look like a solution that can be adapted, adapted to support ongoing challenges that that move forward? Now, if a, an example I would give is that I don't think anyone would can ever honestly say that we that we we could foresee the challenges that we face today, and um, even at the start of the year and years gone by, and there's there's been. There's been two approaches and two opportunities that we've seen. Um, there's people that have, have gone out to the market and they've they've they purchased they purchased a piece of technology that will address a specific challenge today. And there's people that have that have been able to engage with their existing partners, and they've been able to to adapt the technologies that they already have deployed. And some of the the fundamentals that that, that I. I the fundamental areas that they've benefited from is is open architecture or an, an open platform system. So if we look at a video surveillance system, if you've got a camera pointing at the door that is there for security, these open platform technologies that may enable sort of edge analytics to be installed into the camera, 
now we can turn that that technology into some form of business optimization or business efficiency. So so that same camera that was there to perform security is, has now been adapted to support to support social distancing. It's there to to support with the occupancy analytics. It's been there to support directional detection, and and that's only achieved because that technology em- embraces. The embraces openness. It allows allows multiple different tech technologies or analytics to be installed in it. Now, if that technology was some form of closed protocol system, what we're starting to see is we're starting to see people install a second piece of technology next to that camera. It may even be a second camera, and they fundamentally run different systems. So, is that a shrewd investment where we can we can buy a technology that actually we is, is fit for purpose in today is it, it'll give us the occupancy it'll do the social distancing but but in in six 12 months time can we get that that same piece of technology to start to do different things and, and embrace different things and and one of the one of the other areas that I think is really important is is that when we're making these purchasing decisions we we shouldn't lose focus on on some of the the core areas that were really important with us to start with, um, and, and, and one quite close to my heart is is the importance of cyber maturity and and how how secure are the technologies being deployed. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to address a, a specific challenge and add unnecessary risk further down the line. What we have seen as well is that the businesses that we that we've seen that have got have got quite strong sort of security posture and understand the importance. They they've continued to embrace these challenges, and when we consider now that over the last three to four months, the number of businesses that have gone into lockdown and have sent their staff home, remote working, what level of risk has that added? Um, both to their property because there is no, there's you know little to, to no staff on these sites. But what level of sort of cyber risk does that has that brought into their business as well? Because when we consider now that that in order to get people to remotely work, what we're starting to do is we're starting to open up our networks. We're, we've got remote access into systems. What level of security are we now putting into these into these sites? And are the technologies that we're being that are being deployed into these sites? Are, are they are they actually still aligned to, to the IT policies that we've got, and, and and that really sort of supports the the ongoing discussions that, that we're having across the industry around sort of a converged security approach um, or enterprise security risk management, where where it's it's important to it's important to increase the number of stakeholders throughout the purchasing process to make sure that that actually. The, the physical security teams that are there to secure are still working with with the IT teams to make sure that the, the technologies that are being that, that are being procured and being deployed are, are still secure and um, from a cybersecurity point of view or an IT security point of view. Because I think it would be it'd be a catastrophic disaster if the systems that have been invested in to, to secure the properties and secure the business were the were the root cause of of a you know a of a, a system being broken into, whether or not that be physically, because someone's been able to access the the surveillance systems remotely to get an appreciation of what the site looks like, 
or if if it's even if it's just a loss of data, if it's a loss of reputation, it's, it's reputational damage, or, or worst case scenario, if it if it's a, a subsequent fine based on on the loss of data. So so there are absolutely key considerations that I think um, people need to to consider. Um, just to, to recap, I, open systems embrace open systems because they create data um, and information, and make sure the the technology is intelligent. And, and maintain the security posture when it when it comes to cyber security and, and embrace the importance of sort of a converged security approach or enterprise security risk management. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks to Gus Darrett Warren of the Links International Group, Richard Jackson of Gatesafe and Stephen Kenny from Axis Communications for their valued contributions. Many thanks also to our sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th and 28th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security world. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up for our weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key things you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into the platform search box. We'll see you next time.